of 11 FS, I'm David Breer and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Revolut teams up with Mastercard to help them launch in the US weeks after their visa deal was announced. Santander takes on Goldman in their US deposits market and EY's alternative workplace training for women. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we get into that, you may have heard by now that we've made a documentary. If you haven't, I think you're probably living under a bit of a rock, to be fair. It's called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, and it's now available to watch for free over at 11years.film. It's in just 60 minutes. You will learn how the financial crisis caused a reform in UK regulation that encourages competition, why UK Fintech is so attractive to VC firms and angel investors, what future challenges and opportunities exist for the UK Fintech scene, and so, so much more. So check it out over on 11years.film and share it with all of your friends using hashtag 11years. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 369 of Fintech Insider. Today, I am joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kaczynski. How's it going? It's good. Very, very busy as per usual. Not enjoying the change in the weather. Feeling a bit sad. <laughs> we were just having a conversation before we started about how you and I have both been on like nice sunny holidays really recently and we're recording on like the gloomiest, wettest day of the year so far. I yeah, I nearly drowned getting in from the station this morning. It was kind of sucky. But uh, I mean, this is going to be good for me today. I was saying this before the show is like I've been off social and everything all week while being on holiday. So I have no idea what's going on. So this is just like a catch up for me. It's <laughs> your refresher for the week. It is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we could do this every week so I just don't have to learn anything, that would be wonderful, I reckon. <laughs> It's not like we do do this every week. That's true. We do, don't we? All right. Let's get on with the show. First up, we have two returning guests this week. So we have Diana Paredes, the CEO and founder of Suede Labs. How's it going? All good. All good. Gloomy about the weather, but, you know, happy to be inside here. I mean, the countdown to summer begins again, doesn't it? Right. I know. Although if you basically do like sunny holidays for Christmas, that's like the way to get away. Mm. Next up, we have Daniel Hegarty, who is the CEO and founder of Habito. How's it going? It's going well. It is. Uh, it's lovely to be bathed in the warmth of your mahogany tans. Um, <laughs> congratulations on on that. I, I'm not sure I'm getting the sincerity <laughs> there. Are you? Like, uh, I think it just sounds like jealousy. There might might be some sarcasm there. Yeah, Possibly. Well, great, great to have you back. How's things? Good, good. Busy launching lots of products, which you've covered. Thank you so much, all of you. In fact, <laughs> And last but not least, making his debut, we have Oliver Smith, who is the editor at Altfi. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Glad to be here. No worries. Welcome to the show. I mean, do you want to slag off the weather as well? Everybody else seems to have a bit of a pop. It is it, so. pretty miserable yeah. outside. <laughs> I feel so British, don't you? Though? This is a very British episode. Even Diana's on board, and she's yeah. not British. I mean, you've acclimatized very well by I just have, having go the weather. You have to. It's just a way of survival. But yeah. I did get totally drenched today between mm. meetings. I had to actually go and buy new clothes in between. Oh, I hate and that. I have an umbrella. That's how wet it was. Out I mean, there. anybody anybody who didn't know that that was happening, you just look really fancy. Like, well, uh, Diana I was like a shopping just, bag. I yeah. was like, I'm going to be 10 minutes late for my next meeting. Just tell them. I'm changing outfits. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very impressive. You have to do it. All right, let's get on with the news. So this week we have a story first up on Reuters, which is Revolut to launch in the US by end of year with MasterCard deals. So this is Revolut is set to begin issuing its cards in the US by the end of the year via a partnership with payments company MasterCard. The two businesses will partner on a minimum of 50% of all existing and future cards for Revolut issue in Europe. The weird thing about this is this sort of comes hot off the news about a big partnership that Revolut has with Visa, which is why I'm sort of quite confused about this one. What's going on, Sarah? 
Uh, well, I think Revolut is in that very enviable position where it can literally get what it wants at this stage with the amount of money it's got behind it and the speed at which it's growing. You know, it does make sense for it to have partnerships with both the major card networks. And I think it's just literally the scale of the company which allows them and the speed at which they're spreading to new territories as well. So they can keep, you know, Visa in X markets and MasterCard in Y markets makes them very, very attractive to these card providers. Is this, uh, I mean, fintechs now being able to throw their weight around in the way that big banks have from a vendor? a relationship spent? I think it's certainly true of, of some of them, Revolut being one of them, definitely. Is this a win for MasterCard on the basis that it's basically saying a minimum of 50%? So is it essentially just gaining potential parity with Visa? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it depends, you know, which countries they go into next. And if it, a minimum of 50% of all existing and future cards Revolut issue in Europe. So how is that going to affect the new markets? Like, does that mean Visa are going to have to take a hit? I, I can't quite work out the logistics of this because um, Revolut has been a, a visa house in, in most parts of Europe so far. Does that mean that in maybe, for example, in the UK, everybody up to now has a visa Revolut card, but mm-hmm. if they start issuing them as of you know, January the 1st, you're going to get a MasterCard. doesn't make much difference, I imagine, to, to the consumer. You know, but in most parts of the world, visa and MasterCard are equally accepted. They're mm-hmm. either accepted or they're not. And if you accept one, you tend to accept the other. Mm. I would love to know the dynamics of who's working this out in the background mm. <laughs> and the intricacies of the business deal, put it that way. What do you guys think? Mm. I think there's a really interesting battle heating up between Visa and MasterCard to sort of own the fintech challenger bank space. I think it was Dozens, another sort of digital player in the UK, who switched from MasterCard to Visa. So clearly there's some sort of negotiation going on in the background, which we're not aware of. Maybe they're slashing their fees. They're trying to sort of lure people across. I mean, competition is good. Competition is good for customers. So at the end of the day, I think it's a positive thing. Obviously, Revolut are using that competition much to their advantage. When and we saw the first fintechs emerge, certainly in the UK, they were all MasterCard mm-hmm. because MasterCard got there first. They got their act together first in terms of being able to sell into these companies and being able to put together packages that would work for companies of their, their size. As you say, it's like Visa have like come from behind and are mm. now, you know, it's, it's probably a two-horse race again. But both houses have actually a very strong fintech team. Mm-hmm. And so they've been working in the market for the past few years. But it's true that MasterCard started first. Visa, you started seeing their teams in the market a bit more slowly. But it's I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think this is very exciting, as in if I was Revolut, I'd be really happy to have that situation, right? MasterCard or Visa, that's basically the whole market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's really, really exciting news. They just need a Chinese card on the on the list and they're there. I'm That's sure. right. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure it's coming. Get there. Yeah. No doubt. To your point, uh, I think it's very similar to probably what's happening in the cloud services perspective, isn't it? Mm. Actually, we saw everybody sort of flock to AWS originally and now Microsoft and Google are actually doing a pretty amazing job to, of when people have kind of scaled to a certain degree, pulling them back into, into the fray essentially. But to your point, Dana, the MasterCard relationships very early on were – very sort of partnership driven. You yeah. know, the ecosystem that they are in really sort of made them the default by default rather yeah, than yeah. by people picking them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see how this one plays out to a certain degree. I'm also interested on kind of like this is news, but not really news. You know, Revolut are going to the US. I'm actually more interested in in how Revolut does in the US, given that, in my opinion, the US is really quite a saturated market at this mm-hmm. point. And I've looked into it and I can't really see that any of Revolut's USPs that work over here work in the States. So free ATMs, well, uh, Chime does that. The idea of like being able to, you know, spend money abroad for free on your card. Again, a lot of the challenger banks have that. Also, it's not quite as appealing in the US market. Yeah. Crypto, Robinhood have got that down. So I'm going to be really interested to see what impact they have over there because mm. the MasterCard thing is kind of interesting from a kind of a fintech geek perspective. But whether Revolut is going to, you know, having a MasterCard card is not going to make Revolut a success in the US. Mm. S- something else has got to. I can't can't see it yet. That doesn't mean it isn't there, but I 
having examined the market, can't find it. In the US right now, like being free isn't even necessarily enough. No. I think both so far, I think even T-Mobile are now have a checking account where you're receiving 2% on your checking deposit. So I think, you know, given, you know, the kind of standard, I actually read something yesterday that now the standard bank withdrawal, the average bank withdrawal fee in the US is $5 which is, in, is insane. Um, and given also the kind of the amount of fat in the margin on interchange as well there, I think you can imagine there's some margins be negotiated away with uh, with MasterCard and Visa. But no, I completely agree. I think it's going to be a total bloodbath over there in terms of, of the neo banks. And Chima, you know, I think they're adding about 300,000 customers a month. Yeah, and they seem to be successful. making good progress, but they're also spending really a rather extraordinary amount of money on advertising. Mm. Um, and I guess the slightly, I should be, a little cautious, but the slightly soft bank like thing that's occurring is that DST are behind mm-hmm. Chime and Robinhood mm-hmm. and Revolut. And, Revolut yes. and all of them are, you know, claiming this is a vital part of their growth strategy. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any there, I wonder how much how much of this is mandated by investors as well, because obviously mm. once you get a certain amount of money in the bank and then it's part of your plan, you have to kind of go and do the US. Sometimes it's a bit too early. Mm. I have a lot of friends that after a big round they have to open into the US and it's actually a business that they end up losing money for a while until it becomes really profitable. So We, we talked about this um, a few weeks ago when we talked about the visa deal and them going into sort of 24 new countries and, and we said that we thought that that was probably prompted by investors as well. You get that big, yeah. you've got that much money behind you, you've mm. got that level of valuation, your investors start to say, okay, keep going then. You know, we, This is the scale we've seen, we expect you to continue that. Mm. Yeah. Whether that's the right decision or not for the company or I don't know. But it is exactly as you say, we, we once you pick up that momentum, it's very, very hard to go. And now we're going to mm. slow down again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks bad for the market, right? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting because, like you say, I think while it, it is competitive in terms of like the fintech players that are out there, the existing incumbent banks are not really budging in terms of those fees. So, no. I mean, there are a lot of alternatives or a lot of fat to still sort of chew over, I think, in that space. Mm-hmm. And given the US is such a big place, the, you know, state by state, Chime's doing well in some places, but I mean, you can't move for N26 adverts now in New York. Like, yep. they're just everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see where Revolut and obviously Monzo's going a little bit more sort of West Coast, isn't it, mm. with the, the sort of deployment that they're doing. But um, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens next. Mm, All right. Next story we have on payments.com. So this is Santander rolls out US digital deposits to rival Goldman Sachs. So to increase deposits and increase access to US investments, Santander aims to establish a new online portal with better money market rates than Wall Street banks are providing. They're calling this a a national deposit gathering platform, NDGP, nice, uh, which will be, it sounds like actually some sort of police enforcement thing, doesn't it? So, which will be rolled out in 2020. So Santander, current 145 billion US offering includes credit cards, car loans, bankings, and a bunch of other stuff. The bank only operates physical branches in nine states, which limits its current ability to attract deposits. That's um, startling, isn't it? For a bank of Santander's scale, they only operate in nine states. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. It only operates physical branches in nine states. So I don't know if you can still take out a credit card with Santander if you're not in those nine states would be my mm, be interesting yeah, to see I don't know I know I that the American know. laws are very confusing state by state and like I know that people have been burnt before where they think you can sell a product across state lines and actually that's not the case. Um, I mean, Santander in the US is not really considered a big bank. No, no, it's not. I mean, I I don't know off the top of my head what the the stats are for JP Morgan Chase, but I think they're significantly more than 145 billion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And actually, when you speak at any kind of event and people compare like a large bank, they will be talking about Citi, Mm -hmm. JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. Santander is nowhere near those Mm -hmm. numbers. I mean, there's a very big gap between the top five and the other 
9,800-something, <laughs> right. yeah. isn't there? Which is it's just breathtaking, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, is this them really competing with Marcus or is this something else? Not yet, I don't think. But given it's kind of like they're dipping the toe in the water before they bring their open bank, which, by the way, is the worst name for a digital-only <laughs> bank really because is. it drives me absolutely <laughs> mad. I know open bank has existed before open banking <laughs> was created, but it still drives me around the wait, bend. Wait, what? They've called their digital bank open bank? Yeah, their, their digital mm-hmm. bank was called open bank. Before open banking. Okay. And then we had open banking. And what they've decided is they've kind of revamped open bank. As far as I remember, it kind of it's existed in Spain for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And where other banks have gone, oh, well, we're going to go away and we're going to build a challenger brand on the side. Particularly in the UK, we've seen this. Santander have gone, well, we've, we've got one. Let's just like revamp it. A little bit like First Direct. Uh, HSBC is doing First Direct. We've got yeah. a, a yeah. branchless brand. Let's revamp it. Um, but they haven't changed the name. So it's called Open Bank. But the point being that their long-term plan is to bring that digital-only play to the US. And I wonder if it is just this is just dipping a toe in the water. We're not competing with Marcus yet, but we're going to go out there and see what's going on. And if we can like raise some deposits a hell of a lot cheaper, then why not do that at the same time? Mm. I wonder if it'll carry as much weight. To your point, Santander are not known in the way that, I mean, even Goldman Sachs, albeit doesn't have a retail sort of focus, does have, brand, right? it has brand equity. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas Santander probably wouldn't do from attracting deposits perspective. Not really. Unless that works in its favour, because Goldman Sachs notably didn't call their online platform Goldman Sachs. They called it Marcus Powered by Goldman Sachs. But I think that, I think the Powered by does yeah. add a lot of credibility to it, though. I think uh, particularly for a US market who are looking, you know, very brand driven on mm-hmm. those things, then actually being in a situation where actually you had that credibility of a big old kind of uh, established organisation mm-hmm. with all of that heritage. I wonder how much that did play in it. I mean, let's be real. The reason, and I love Marcus, and everybody knows that I love Marcus, but the reason it did so well in the US was those rates. That, it offered. Right. that was yeah. absolutely what brought people in, whether that's loans or savings. So Santander is going to have to compete in an environment that is arguably harder to compete in now than it was when Marcus went live. You know, we've seen Marcus cut their rates and cut their rates and cut their rates mm-hmm. and even recently cut their terms and conditions. They used to give you a month's notice to tell you they went and cut their rate and now it's only two weeks. Yeah. Santander is coming into a much harder market with a savings mm. product. But I heard on the grapevine that actually part of the, the strategy is to try to tackle the like Latino market that there is in, in America. And so obviously they're very big in Latin in America, mm-hmm. then trying to get those kind of customers with that kind of angle is also is also part of their, their strategy from what I've heard. And mm-hmm. I would say that's absolutely a demographic that Goldman Sachs probably won't have that's succeeded right. as well with as perhaps other demographics. Yeah. Maybe. What do you think? Another digital bank launching in the US. It's sort of... <laughs> Oh it's almost God. like the stories flow together, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like we need a jingle. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question would be, what's their differentiation when they do launch over there? How is it going to be different from Monzo, Revolut, all the other players mm-hmm. who are breaching that market at the moment? Competition is great. It's a positive thing. But, um, you know, will they actually have an offering that stands, that has a USP? Maybe they will because they're going with the, the deposit side of things. But sort of wait and see. All right. Well, uh it's going to be an interesting scrap, like you say, out there in terms of uh, who gets what sort of slice of the market share. Or, I mean, at this stage, we're sort of presuming they do, but potentially some of these big banks might get their shit together, right? Mm-hmm. Let us see. All right. Next up, we have a story on CNBC, which is PayPal is launching a Venmo credit card. 
uh, to help monetize the payment app. Do you know what the thing about this that was surprising? I forgot that Venmo was owned by PayPal. Mm. Mm. People people do. (laughs) So uh, Venmo, owned by PayPal, will offer a Venmo-branded credit card in 2020. So they're saying that this is the next natural extension uh, was to have a Venmo credit card. This was otherwise a gap in the debit with their debit card. I'm not sure I'm really necessarily following this other than (laughs) just really trying to monetize 40 million users that they've actually got. But uh, that point around PayPal owning Venmo, do you think Venmo users know that PayPal own it? It would be like finding out, you know, Facebook owns WhatsApp. Well, I'm more more Apple, yeah. more Apple owns Microsoft. Do you know what I mean? It's like your dad made a cool thing. Like, because PayPal yeah. are very corporate these days, and Venmo is still marketed and, and sort of directed at a very different base, you know? Mm. PayPal, I still think, is like people who remember when eBay was just being launched, whereas Venmo is much more like millennial market, right? I think you can Don't turn... laugh at me like that, Tiana. <laughs> what do you mean? I agree. <laughs> I think you can also turn that round, though, and say, you know, so what happened was that Venmo was acquired by Braintree and Braintree was acquired by PayPal. And what you can see is like that's a successful acquisition. Mm. If you let that come... I know it's not profitable. I know that that's another another arm to this. But if you let that brand continue to be its mm. own brand and don't try and force it into your corporate mold, mm. let it do what it's done so well, it can work for you. Yeah, M- I mean, M&A done well. Yeah. M- corporate M&A Good done... Grief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I think it's, it's an interesting one. It's it's fleshing out the suite of products. It has questions over, you know, whether Venmo users really do need another credit card. There's a lot of credit cards in the States. There's an awful lot of credit card debt. Venmo users tend to be younger. All those questions are definitely going to be asked. I mean, it, it feels like a sensible move to me. Like, why not just add another product in there? But remains to be seen. I, I think there'll be a lot of questions asked about mm. it, particularly, again, like also how you get people to use it because everybody in the US uses credit cards because they come with fabulous rewards, mm. mm-hmm. which I can only dream of in the UK. Um, <laughs> but So that means that Venmo is going to have to offer something mm. to its users to get them to use that rather than the debit card. I don't know what that is yet. To me, it's kind of interesting in the context of the of, of, of the, the pattern of most fintechs globally sort of looking at some kind of aggregation play where they solve a, a fundamental problem immediately and then finding their way into credit eventually to actually generate margin. And particularly given the kind of, I know, I think my, my general sense is that lending is probably at the kind of lower end of the, the cycle, the hype cycle right now. And in terms of uh, attracting investor interest, kind of curious to see if some of the smaller businesses that have not already been acquired are as comfortable making a play into lending, if it does something that's you know problematic to the valuation, for example. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the lending plays we've seen of late have been the the Klarna style lending. You know, mm-hmm. the the point of sale loans or the the buy now pay later. Mm-hmm. The credit card sort of almost feels like a an old model of, mm. of, of lending or issuing credit. But I have this sort of like flashing image in my brain of like five years ago when everybody said, FinTech is going to unbundle the banks. And now we're rebundling the services. <laughs> and it just goes to show I think that people do just want everything in one place. Mm. And we're a bit fed up of having 75 million different apps doing 75 million different things. But I don't know if it's just that. I think that it's also the reality that actually making a bank is a lot more complicated than people necessarily envisage. <laughs> like even when you think about, you know, like infrastructure type startups doing, you know, like Thought Machine, 10X, Mambo, all of those guys. It's not that clear cut to be able to to do the same thing that a bank does for the past, you know, 50 years relatively well. Not perfect, but it doesn't do it too much mm-hmm. of a bad job in it. And make money. And make money. <laughs> I think it's representative that people have started at different places. Like every different organization sort of came into the market with a different beachhead. And actually, I mean, where we are now, Revolut and N26 and Monzo look similar. But like if you 
roll back like three years. They mm-hmm. had a very different starting point, didn't That's they? Right. And maybe this is just people going, wait, monoline stuff isn't profitable in the way that it could be. And actually when we've got X number of people, what was it, 60 million customers or something, then actually they're in a position that they can start monetizing that for other ways. You know, mm-hmm. probably makes sense, really. It's something we... Or, or actually starting to monetize it based on this one, but... It's something we write about on Altfi quite a lot about convergence and coming together. And the question is, as we all... All these players are sort of adding the same products, but does it matter where you came in from in terms of trust, in terms of your customers? Wealthsimple in, in Canada, you know, they started with wealth and now they're adding all these pieces, whereas Monzo started with the current account. So which play is right and which direction coming into the middle where we're all going to end up is the right direction. It means you've got to actually name your startup sensibly. Well. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I would say there is, and this is something I say quite a lot, I, I bang on about it, but I think brand is still incredibly, incredibly mm. important. And I think, you know, Revolut has a certain association with it in the UK. Monzo has a different association. And actually, I think Starling has a third association mm-hmm. because of the brand they have, the positioning they have. You know, since they've all gone into advertising, television, tube, I'm sure there's print ads, I haven't seen any, but it feels like there should be. It is to do with what, who are you targeting? You know, mm. yeah, you're all offering the same suite of services, but like Monzo is open and transparent and kind of down to earth. Starling is a bit more grown up, a bit more professional, a bit more business-like perhaps. Just, you know, in the impressions they give, whether that's true or not, mm. you don't know. But if we're talking about customer trust, and if you're looking about trying to stand out in a, a you know, a, a very, very crowded market, then I think brand is, is super important. And if, you know, you started with something like investing and people trusted you to invest their money, then yeah, they probably will trust you with a current account. Mm. If you started with overseas spending or cryptocurrency, maybe they might not trust you with savings. I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. I do think the brand that you've built and what you've got associated with you is hugely important. Mm. I think that's super interesting. I, I saw that Starling ad yesterday or the day before and was, and was totally... During the bake-off? No, not actually on the TV. No, I don't. I wish I did. Oh, no. There's a story that's going to come later that will make that comment make sense, I promise. Um, But I I was incredibly struck by how much – I almost – I thought it was a Lloyd's effort. Like I was, I was struck by how bank-like it was, and kind of, and how conservative. And I actually, having I guess made some advertising myself, was really. I remember going through the same process as being like, we need to be. We're doing mortgages. We need to build trust. This needs to be robust and tangible, and speak to the future. And really, kind of coming to that point of recognition that, like, that well, that's what bank advertising is. Mm. And if you do that, then you're going to be undifferentiated. And if you're undifferentiated and not the cheapest. Mm. You're dead. Do you know, I responded to a tweet earlier on actually from somebody from Starling who mm-hmm. was watching Anne do a presentation somewhere, I can't remember where, and one of Anne's comments, uh, Anne Bowden, the CEO of Starling, was uh, in a few years will be thought of the same as Barclays and Lloyds, and, and I was like, bloody hell. Is that what you want? Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. Like, that's not the dream. Like, if you were there to create just another bank, then uh, I'll be, so, you know, really disappointed, actually. I think it's interesting as well, your point saying, oh, you thought it was a Lloyds ad or whatever, so I always... I I always think that a lot of the um, the bank advertising you see for the big banks uh, in the UK, I don't know about abroad, it feels very vanilla. They are so scared about offending anybody. They go down this kind of very vanilla path that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So the Lloyd's ad is a great example. That horse running on a beach. It's a great horse. The beach looks very pretty. Great looking horse. <laughs> Not quite sure what that's got to do with banking. Um, but in contrast, I have to say that your ads, Dan, are some of the ones that make me go, what's going on in the corner? Like, they catch your eye and they make you actually, you know, when you're watching TV, you turn around to make a cup of tea in the ad break and then you just tend to ignore it. 
when Dan's ads come on, I'm like swiveling in the kitchen. We're to, have find to check them out. I haven't they seen are them. amazing. They're really? absolutely amazing. They're deeply problematic. <laughs> best avoided. <laughs> I like them. Uh, maybe it's I'm glad you do. <laughs> I love them too. But it's interesting because obviously when you look at the a bit the history of the challenger banks, and we've had so many of them here in the UK, with Metro Bank being the first one, and then what's happened as well in the in the last few months for them, it is a challenging market, right? It's not that trivial to start a new bank, and I think that's the stuff that we're all learning. I know this sounds flip, but like if it's the same people from the banks buying the same software from the same software providers yeah. like it shouldn't be an enormous surprise that it ends yeah. up being the same thing with a different label right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I think that hopefully that's the difference though between I think I don't count Metro as a challenger bank well they do bank. count themselves as a challenger yeah. bank I count myself a millennial but I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure other people would you know what I mean like technically it's true yeah. but mm. still you know yeah. right um, so, so it's um, it's kind of one of those ones where I'm like I'm not sure the new new banks are really like the sort of middle new yes. banks you know what I mean? and they're definitely not like the old old banks because yeah. while they uh, they did create something new to to your point Dan actually they, they did it with exactly the same technology with exactly the same culture if not probably just hired a bunch of bank people to do it. I think what the Monzos and Revoluts and Starlings of the world did was sprinkling of like banky folk. But actually, how do you bring in a real sort of technology experience, which is uh, predominantly the thing that's mostly missing from from that to create a, a different culture in many uh, instances to actually deliver something different? Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. So, so because we work with quite a few of those brands and uh, there is a distinct difference between the technology people mm. they actually have in-house and it is really quality as in it's basically just a bunch of developers and the the ease of you know integrating and dealing with APIs and talking about certain mm-hmm. things I've had like very senior people have some large banks not really knowing what an API was or right. asking me to help them understand what the you know what a cloud was and you're like what? Go on name you're them. like I can't yeah I'm taking this to the grave <laughs> but, but the things we've seen but it will shock you. But it's it's interesting baggage that those big organizations kind of carry with them, isn't it? Because essentially there, it is harder to take 150,000 people and change the entirety of the culture and like 50 monolithic architectures in the back office and rationalize all of those things down to have a hope in hell of doing anything that Monzo or Revolut or Starling are doing. Well, to bring this full circle, is it impressive that PayPal, which we can now think of perhaps as an incumbent, is doing so well with Venmo? You know, mm-hmm. And again, is that down to, as you said, like the different brand or if they've got a different Tech stack, I don't actually know yeah. that, but you know they are they are arguably an incumbent at this point. If, if Metro isn't a challenger, then PayPal isn't a fintech, really. Mm. Yeah, I don't yeah. think PayPal's a fintech. I That's think what I mean. I, yeah, That's what I'm I, th- I think they are a corporate now, but it's it's an interesting. I mean, it's like hang-ups we have about who's a startup, who's a scale-up, and who's mm-hmm. a corporate, isn't it? So essentially, every organization aspires to do well to become a corporate, I guess. But then is that then you selling out to – it's like uh, it's when your favorite band suddenly starts going all, all kind of like scaly and, uh, and weird, right? No favorite band, Sarah? I just don't know what you mean by scaly. Oh, not literal scaly. <laughs> I mean, like, do you mean like they get terrible dress no, Yeah, not, not, not like sneaky. <laughs> no, but it, it's an interesting thing, right? Because, for example, like the culture piece, I think, is key to all of that. Yeah. So effectively, is if you grow, as you grow, if it's something that you don't decide to keep – really close to your heart, it can change very quickly, mm-hmm. right? So like we've witnessed that as the company has been growing, it's very easy to start doing, you know, more and more 
like consulting type things rather than actually technology. And it's almost something that the industry requires from you. But then, you know, if you decide to stay strong with some of the principles that made you found the company at the beginning. So for us, we wanted to be a tech company. It just means that you focus on that. Mm. But it really is quite, quite fascinating to see how the, it, it basically all goes down to, to culture. Effectively. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with that. I mean, we um, at 11FS, we spent a lot of time looking at values. Yeah. And I spend at least 40% of my time on culture of yeah. one form or another in terms of kind of what we're doing. And that that can be how you do performance management or it can be how you do how you embed your values into your hiring process. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder, to your point, actually do these organizations get to such a scale where the people who were doing that in the way that they wanted it to be done in the first place are now so far remote from the the process that it just becomes like every other organization. I think it can happen, definitely, and we've seen that happen. But I think that the, I mean, when you think about the tech companies in Silicon Valley and all of that, so no matter how large they grow, there is a culture piece that they try to really keep close to heart. Mm. So as long as you do that well, I think you can actually grow and keep the culture and stay a very cool tech company. And you still look like a startup, even though you're not a startup anymore. Yeah, I think you just just have to like remember how deeply unnatural it is to scale any group of people at this pace and that you're going to have to do things that feel... And I've, I've certainly struggled with it at times, you know, with value stuff where I'm like, oh, I don't want to tell people how to think or to behave or like, <laughs> like it feels like using like language as an artifice is kind of icky somehow. Mm. But actually you have to do some kind of unnatural things to align like cultural behaviors and yeah, get people yeah, pointing yeah. in the same direction. Mm. And I think it took me a little while to, to kind of to find that maturity and find, find people who understood how to do it. Yeah. It, it, it is a weird one. I mean, I feel like this is turning into a self-help group. <laughs> we, we, yeah. Yeah. Lord, we need to move on relatively quickly. No, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> I know you are. We, we, we could, the next story would be a brilliant one to talk about. Oh, yeah. I'm going to rant you could, like, about this I one. I segue in. Fine. <laughs> All right. Let's do this. All right. From retail to business. So Amex is now offering credit cards for corporates. So Amex joins the corporate credit card for startups world. So the new cards will be available in the coming months offering full corporate liability without requiring founders to provide a security deposit or personal guarantee. Thank fuck, because this entire company has been on my credit history for the last three and a half years. Um, We acknowledge that for a younger company with a younger set of founders, the traditional corporate program wasn't meeting their needs. Yes, it was not. A new technology allows Amex to see a startup's bank balance to let fledgling firms qualify for cards. So I presume this is taking advantage of some form of open banking? Certainly some sort of open APIs. I actually um, heard, uh, read an article the other day about somebody in America saying, uh, we're much better at B2B open banking than you are in Europe. We don't need your rules. And they, they kind of have a point that a lot of the big organizations in the States of these open APIs are really, really useful mm-hmm. for bringing in new business. And, you know, what you're talking about here is being able to – one of the reasons that startups traditionally didn't get a bank account was because they had nothing – to, to, to prove that they were going to be any, you know, going to make any money or nothing to make sure that they were, you know, good for the money, if you like, except the founder's house, which obviously mm. isn't a great way to start your business. <laughs> um, Tell but, me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of being able to use these open APIs to maybe find other ways of assessing creditworthiness is mm. a trend that we're going to see more and more of. And I, mm. I, for one, think it's fantastic. I can't speak to Amex's um, treatment of startups, but it sounds like, David, you may have some thoughts on the matter. So there was one particular instance where I was in America and I got a phone call as I was boarding a plane that they'd locked the account because we'd tripped over the amount that we could spend 
and shut down both my credit card and my family's credit card, oh meaning that my wife's credit card was declined going to Sainsbury's to buy stuff. Even though it was a different account, right? Yeah, so that because was your it personal was, wow. versus... Yeah, because yeah. it was all just under the same account. Nice. The ability to create and provision sub-accounts to give access to anybody else in 11FS is shocking to the point where I just gave up. Um, he just passed his card around, if you're honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, about bloody time, Amex. But um, it's going to be interesting to see whether... I wonder if they've got the brand to do this in that sense because I don't think those fancy gold and platinum cards really work in startups in that way. You know, you've got Soldo and you've got uh, what Brex Spendesk is a big, and Brex is a big one in the US. Yeah, Brilliant. kind of all these people really sort of tearing it up with decent branding, with sub accounts that you can provision in seconds, with sort of fully virtual accounts that you can kind of set up. So I wonder if Amex will really sort of carry weight with startups or not. In Europe, I, a lot of my friends use Amex. A lot. But is that... Because for... the rewards. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. That, and there's nothing wrong with it, right? So I think if you think of it, even like the context of like different founders and their background, they were using Amex maybe already before, and then they just decide to add it for the business. But, so. but this is just for the US, am I right? Yes, as far as... For the at, US at the moment. For the moment yeah. I don't, and please correct me, I don't think this model works in the UK, right? Because all of their revenue margin is uh, interchange. So... I mean, the Amex model doesn't work. No, with the, the Brex model, the, oh, the right, seem yes. to be Stripe model. So I don't, I, I can't imagine they would be launching this here. If they launched it here, they would still do what they do already, which is charge you for it. Yeah. So I mean, a gold or an Am- um, platinum Amex is what four, five hundred quid a yeah. year. I think yeah. 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 around five hundred. Yeah, and then so they would charge you for it, which okay. then goes against really the. Uh, Soldo and Spendesk kind of kind of model. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would necessarily work here in the same way as, as you say it would kind of work in the US. But, sorry, I was going to say that Soldo and Spendesk though are not credit no. cards, so charge. you have to have their charge cards. Yeah, so, so you I preload get, them. Yeah, so mm-hmm. is it, this is a credit card though rather than charge card. Is that correct? I can't. I, yes, it is credit. Yeah, it's yeah. credit it's card. Yeah, yeah. If it's mirroring, I mean, so the Brex model, I, I kind of think of it as almost like pseudo venture debt. Mm-hmm. So in essence, like, because there is no cash flow in a, through a startup apart from the money the investor gave you. So they basically say, well, if Index gave you 12 million, I'll give you 120K, go nuts on your credit card, mm-hmm. which, is kind of, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, but does, I guess, the, the market share is then dependent on the volume of venture capital going into startups' mm-hmm. accounts. And that was the, the criticism and the concern around Brex was mm-hmm. that it was playing to that Y Combinator network that they emerged from, mm-hmm. signing up all those startups and then lending on top of their, their venture. So round. signing up their mates and then lending to people who have the same backers as them, is that what you mean? Yes. Smart. My brain's computing that model. I mean, that's essentially network effects. old school <laughs> banking, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's very securitized lending, but not your money to lend. Yeah, that's yeah. It's smart. Like, uh, I like that. I like yeah. the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Liquidity gone wrong. <laughs> um, I suppose uh, my concern when I look at this is, is that it is lending against balances. It's not necessarily lending against business performance, which if we look at someone like Iwaka, who are using the similar kind of analysis, but they're looking at performance rather than mm. deposits. So a lot of the businesses with Brex potentially were you know, heavily loss-making startups, but Brex didn't really care. And I wonder what Amex are doing, what their credit controls and what their processes for, mm-hmm. for lending. Mm. Yeah, as opposed to, so it says, you know, flexible depending on the state of the startup's linked bank account. Mm. But we all know that startups, and the smaller the startup, the bigger this problem is, have cash flow problems. Mm. You know, they can have a glut and then a very lean period and a glut and then a very lean period. And I think what you're talking about is the idea of like taking in the, you know, maybe looking at the zero or the, mm. the accounting software and seeing where that flow is actually coming from. Mm. 
if MX is using those open APIs, then there's a chance it might also be connecting into the accounting packages on the side. Maybe. I guess we will find out very shortly. Mm-hmm. All right. On that note, we'll be back very shortly after a break. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you're heading to ZeroCon this year in London's Excel, we'll be putting on another Fintech Insider Live on the exhibition hall stage. Zero is trusting us to wrap up day one on the conference in style with a live show announcing all the fintech partnerships from the event and also the return of the FN debate. If you're at the conference and you won't want to miss out on this, it's on the 13th of November at London's Excel. And if you can't be there like Sarah, stay tuned for the show coming up on the podcast. All right, let's get on with the show. Okay, next story that we have is one over on Finextra. This is fintech API builder Galileo to go global on 77 million capital injection. So Galileo, which provides the API infrastructure layer for some of the world's top fintech startups, is planning global expansion program following its 77 million first funding round. That is a pretty big first round, right? Fintechs such as Chime, Robinhood, Monzo, Revolut, TransferWise, and Vero use Galileo's APIs to open and verify new financial accounts, issue and process payment cards, and launch new products. However, on Monday, they had a bit of a problem, which was why Chime was down for 24 hours, apparently. What do we think to this one? Pretty huge injection of cash, but pretty bad timing to have a bit of a problem, huh? Absolutely. I mean, the huge injection of cash um, presumably is off the back of the success it's had in powering almost all of the uh, the neobanks in the US. They operate, as most listeners would probably know, in the same way that the neobanks uh, operated in the UK when they first started. They need a third-party processor to help them out. They, they can't build that from scratch. Or you can, if you take Starling's approach, it just takes a really long time to do it. So they choose to use a partner instead. They can get to market quicker. They can start focusing on things like customer acquisition. But the problem then, of course, is that you rely on a third party. So, you know, that's the reason Galileo has attracted this money, I think, because it's done so well in, like, gathering these um, fintechs, maybe in the same way that GPS did in the UK. But as you say, that outage was just a kind of, like, all the timing. It, it mm. could possibly have been worse for them. Well, I think I'm, they'll recover. I mean, I hope the money hit the bank before the outage because then, uh, <laughs> like, no takesy backsies, right? So, um, <laughs> so as of September 2019, they managed over 26 billion in annual payments volume, a 130% increase over September 2018. So that is pretty phenomenal growth as well. I think it reflects the state of or the speed of the US neobank market, um, the, the speed at which it's expanding and, and scaling up. You know, when, when you say Monzo, Revolut, TransferWise, well, those it processes for them in the US and those guys have only gone to the US. Well, TransferWise is there a bit 
earlier, but Revolut and Mons have only been there, you know, over the last 12 months. So yeah. I think it is representative of the fact that the market over there, as we've covered extensively today, <laughs> is heating up. I guess uh, somebody described once to me that there were two different forms of trust. So there was mechanical trust and associative trust. Have you heard this? I have not. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, so mechanical trust in the context of a bank being the idea that they will do the things that they said they would. So they will, your direct debit will go out, the ATM will work, that they won't lose the money. And associative trust being the idea that the bank uh, will put your best interest before its own. So you can trust them. They're good guys. Um, and I would argue, I guess, that the, the kind of the Monzos and the, the neo banks, maybe not Revolut, generally do score very well on the associative trust. That like we believe they're on our side, but we're not sure that it's not maybe made out of paper and string, and that's not ideal. Whereas the incumbent banks do very well on the, the mechanical trust. Like my my debit card always works mostly. Yeah, but there are bad months. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I, I think for me, I think as you know, particularly for the neobanks as they are scaling to really, really meaningful numbers now, them increasing that mechanical trust is absolutely core mm. for them moving out of these kind of late early adopter market that they're in now. And for me, this stuff is just catastrophic for that because it is remembered. It's remembered for weeks and months and years. I guess the larger point it brings me to is just should they be relying on something as fundamental as this to be outsourced to a third party like Galileo? Um, mm. And I think there's a, there's a question mark over that given this. Mm. I um, I both love that and hate it because <laughs> I love it because it sounds like something I say. I hate it because it's far more eloquent than I ever put it. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I, uh, I, I think it really is interesting, as you say, though, the fact that people are outsourcing something so critical. You know, obviously Monzo did do this to GPS mm-hmm. and actually then spent the time to build this back into the system. So is this, to your point, to a certain degree, is this people taking a shortcut to get to market that maybe they will backfill with with their own capability, which mm-hmm. would probably undermine quite dramatically the valuation that this company's getting. Yes, I think that that's definitely bad for Galileo. I think it looks it makes perfect sense. Like nobody knows what they're building until they come into contact with customers. So why would you be building account verification backends at this point? But Chime are not a, an early stage business. They've got 5 million customers. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think you can live on third party validation without some backup mm. at that scale without asking some questions. The idea that 5 million in the US market is still a startup. Mm-hmm. But actually in the UK, 5 million would be considered, you know, really quite advanced scale. Be bigger kind of, than TSB, I think, if you had 5 million retail customers. Yeah, right. so so it's an interesting one that where on that curve, you know, not wanting to get Gartnery, but uh, where on the maturity curve mm-hmm. is the sort of view of when a startup in the US reaches a kind of capacity where actually it just starts getting treated like a big boy company. It's interesting in terms of valuations because, uh, you know, if, whenever you hear somebody ill-informed saying, oh, Barclays will just buy Monzo when they want to, and it's like, what's Barclays market cap? Like 39 billion, something mm-hmm. like that. Monzo are not going to be bought for less than three or four or five billion. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think Barclays are going to spend 10% of their market cap on Monzo. But I think Bank of America's market cap's 360 billion. That's right. <laughs> like the scale is radically different. So I think not just in terms of customer numbers, but in terms of their meaningfulness as, as yeah. businesses is very different. I think we just answered the, why is everybody going to the US market? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting for me as well to see that they, they plan to use the money to go into Latin America. So with that money and it feels a little bit almost like they're chasing markets. So you can argue, I think, quite strongly that Latin America are just starting to get the idea of neobanks. And again, Newbank over there, I think, have like maybe 15 million customers. It's it's close to that. Um, but again, that's a tiny proportion of the market in Latin America and, and Newbank are in Brazil and I believe Mexico as well. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Galileo is going where the next big thing is, which does make sense for them. But I wonder how long they can keep that 
Uh, I, I genuinely don't know the answer yeah. to that question. And I don't know what's happened to GPS since most of the UK fintechs have started to build up their own processes. Mm. The Latin American market is super interesting. And I think when, because I'm half Peruvian, so I always follow it very closely. And we started working with some banks out of here that have a lot of bases in, in LATAM. And I think if you look at what's happened in different countries, they've actually been working with the World Bank very, very closely when it's come to fintechs. So we've actually gotten all sorts of grants and investments to basically observe what fintech would look like for them. And so I think that this kind of realities of Galileo looking at that market and, you know, Marcus Santander, those kind of conversations are very much with the reality that LATAM is a huge market to to go into as well, that it's actually becoming more and more mature and there's loads of things that you can be doing there that people are not necessarily thinking mm. of. Mm. And as we, as David said earlier about, you know, these fintechs adding more and more products, these sort of providers, every fintech is going to need a card, probably payment processing, maybe share trading at some point. These sort of providers of those services are going to be key. It worries me a little bit about the centralization question when they do go down. Suddenly you take out, you know, all the Latin American fintechs go down as well as the North American fintechs. Yeah, but you have to also think from like a scale perspective and enterprise software, it can be down, right? I think that, you know, if you remember really how technology actually works, the scalability reality is that 24-hour outage is not the end of the world. It's not super, but you have even very large banks that go out for, you know, a few hours. It's just something that happens. So I'm not sure if like here too big to fail is a reality and, you know, being out mm. 24 hours, it's not ideal, but you have, you know, mm. Cloudflare was out as well and they did a massive IPO. Mm. So I would go with the, you know, technology is not always perfect. That's just how it is. I think what's interesting though is how the press jumps on it when the startups go down 24 of hours yeah. and not so much when Barclays or HSBC or Lloyd's or any other Bank of America goes down for 24 hours. And partly that's, I think, you know, uh, uh, it's a more interesting story, you know, near bank that everybody's mm-hmm. flopped to goes over. But I also think that perhaps the transparency and honesty of some of these new banks works against them. Mm-hmm. So if something goes wrong with Monzo, they're like, oh, something's gone wrong. This is exactly what went wrong. We're so sorry about it. We're working to fix it. And Chime did something very, very similar. But on the other hand, they're putting it out there that they've made a mistake. And I don't know that you'd ever see any of the big banks, either in the US or the UK, going, it's our fault. We messed up. Or it's or even by the way, guys, our system is down. Without you going onto their website and looking for that like downtime tracker, which is in the bottom right-hand corner, you know, once you've been Mm. through 75 search pages. So I wonder if part of the problem is that their transparency and honesty works against them Mm. in those Mm. systems. That's really interesting because I remember, so when we first started, there were a few startups that were getting quite a lot of investment or money from banks, actually, to try to help them mitigate how their, you know, Twitter accounts were working. And so if actually there was some bit of news that was going into the market that was saying bad things about them, then those startups were actually able to give them the information super quickly. And then they would actually be able to act upon that as fast as possible. And so I do think that the larger companies are very used to hiding all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just how they do business. I think I feel bad for them. I'm just like, it's okay. 24 hours. I've seen much worse in banking and I'm an ex-banker. So I think it's not, a, it's not the end of the world. It's not super, but... Yeah, I mean, I think probably the press, particularly in the UK, post-TSB, have been heightened to, like, outages being like a, we should probably try and sack the CEO type narrative, you know? I mean, if you look at everything that happened with Monzo this week with everything on... Watchdog. Yeah, Mm. like, so the fact that they took such an active interest in that whole thing, I'll be honest, that's the only thing I knew about while I'd been away, uh, just because it was everywhere. Like I literally got text messages from people about it. So that was the only reason I actually knew it was happening. But the fact that that was mainstream information is just kind of bizarre. Hmm. 
Mm. Yeah, and then we we can talk about that watchdog story. That's not a story for today, but I think um, you know if you go out there and have a look at, it, I think anybody who works in the industry knows that that was not a very balanced or particularly well researched piece. Mm-hmm. But to go back to Dan's point, it's that associative trust. How much damage does it do to the brand? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I think massively because it's again to your point. It's if the only thing people hear about something in the mainstream is negativity, then it will massively affect it. You know, it would. Uh, do you know what? I got a random text message from my mum about Bitcoin, <laughs> <laughs> and it's these types of things where, like, if if the only reason that somebody hears about something is negative, then actually it's going to be a, a you know an association, isn't it? So. Mm. I would also encourage you. To- to have a look at the newspaper, the personal finance sections of the newspaper, and all the letters which are about traditional banks. You know, my bank has done this, X and Y. There is a lot of coverage about those negative stories. I think a lot of us kind of ignore it because we think it's nothing to do with what... But there, there is a lot of scrutiny. But you're right. The reason why those letter pages exist is because those traditional banks don't address those people. That's right. Whereas Monzo would have a chat with you on yeah. the chat thing and that would sort it all out. So they need an outlet for that and that's... That becomes the... The Daily Mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Moving on. We have a story over on Finextra. This is CYBG to relaunch as Virgin Money. So the rebrand will begin at the end of this month, uh, consigning the century-old Clydesdale banking brand and Yorkshire Bank identity to the history books. So CYBG has agreed a $1.7 billion deal in June last year to take over Virgin Money with the aim of creating a brand with 6 million personal and business customers. The rebrand exercise will see CYBG's digital banking subsidiary B operating under the Virgin Money title by the end of 2019. This is interesting. I honestly just feel like Virgin as a brand doesn't carry the weight that it did in like mid 90s. Like 1.7 billion for that as a totality. Obviously, it's not just the brand, but all of the accounts and assets that that they had. But I mean, does does the Virgin brand carry such a weight given Richard Branson stepped back so far from it now? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, also, if you look at the fact that the Virgin Rail uh, hasn't exactly had a, a brilliant run of it mm-hmm. lately, and that was a brand that was probably people knew most, probably alongside Virgin Airlines. I think the interesting thing here is the fact that they're going to go out there and when they, you know, the CYBG are going to rebrand all their branches as Virgin Money and they're going to be mega stores. So back to Virgin Mega Stores. I don't know if anybody else remembers those. They used to sell CDs. We don't know what CDs are. Please turn off now. Better time. But, you know, they're going to offer co-working advice, mentoring for entrepreneurs and showcasing a life more virgin, which is this idea of a partnership with other virgin companies. So it feels like it's part of a broader campaign to regenerate the virgin brand. What's going to be interesting to me is that to watch is that B has existed for quite a while and perhaps hasn't gained as much traction as people thought it might have done. Will this help it, you know, get out there? And what's going to be different about it? Is it just going to be B with Virgin Money stuck over the front? Or, mm-hmm. you know, everybody knows that Virgin Money invested quite heavily in a new banking platform before they were bought. Mm-hmm. Are they going to incorporate some of that new technology and, you know, give B a revamp? It's going to have to take more than just a mm-hmm. Virgin sticker on the front mm-hmm. of it, as you said. But, but- I, I'm intrigued. I'm not I'm not dismissing They've it They've been yet. doing quite a lot of work, though, for, for some time on the branding piece. And as, in, as someone who has interested with, like, Clydesdale and Virgin separately before and then since they've become a, a brand mm-hmm. together, I can say that you were talking about earlier about, like, culture mm-hmm. and how culture is so difficult to actually scale. I have to say that the, the culture of Virgin Bank 
was drastically different than Clydesdale. And like you could see it even from going into into the, the offices. And I'm not sure if you went to like Virgin offices in, mm-hmm. in London, but they were pretty cool. They mm-hmm. were very startup-y and you'd have this like train going around and that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, I mean, a, like a toy train. Like a toy train, <laughs> yeah. And so I, I always loved going to that office. I was like, you want me in the office? I'll come see you guys there. And, <laughs> but take and your kids. They can be entertained right. in the corner. <laughs> so I think the culture piece, they're very different kinds of teams. And so... The fact that the the branding actually is being attached to Virgin, I don't find that as a surprise because it is definitely mm. way cooler than Clydesdale. And mm. so if they're trying to you know have a tack on like entrepreneurs and younger people and all of that, it's definitely going to be more popular. But I but I guess to all of our points earlier on around culture, this is CYBG buying Virgin. So can they protect the culture to actually allow because you know the culture is just a manifestation of actually the people and how they work, to your point, yeah. the train. So, you know, will that continue to sort of work in the same way, given, you know, David Duffy, who is the CEO, is working in a certain way in CYBG? It's interesting as well, if you look at the way that the Virgin brand is used elsewhere around the world. So if you look at in Australia, for example, the, the Virgin brand is owned by a, a bank, I think it's Bank of Queensland, and it's they, they just kind of buy the brand per se and use mm-hmm. the brand that way. But what we're doing in the UK is that they've bought not just the brand, but the people and the technology and presumably, you know, the, those offices and the office space. So it's a much bigger deal. Well, over I, here. I think that's how it happened initially, though. Essentially, Richard Branson got... Was it two or three million a year for branding licensing? Mm-hmm. That is how it worked here originally, but it was just more successful and created a whole oh, entity okay. around it. Um, but I, I mean, this is going to be fascinating. I, I honestly think the there's so much in branding. You know, you sort of mentioned this a few times, Sarah, and actually the the tone of voice and the permission of a brand to speak to customers in a certain way often is just the differentiator between how you will respond to something. Mm-hmm. You know, a HSBC saying there's an outage versus a Monzo saying an outage. If Monzo does it in their tone and HSBC does it in theirs, then the response to that will be dramatically different. So, I mean, if this does give CYBG the ability to – I've sort of talked myself around here, haven't I? Yeah, you, if, I was going to um, say you took yourself around in a circle. <laughs> If CYBG does use this as an opportunity to have a fundamentally different tone of voice in the market, then A, it'll be fascinating to see how they can acquire new customers, but B, actually their existing customers, how will they respond to that in terms of the the change of focus in terms of what they do? Just as an aside as well, I think that this will give them a broader geographical presence because to the best of my knowledge, CYBG... CY or <laughs> Clydesdale or Yorkshire branches are in the north of England. Virgin branches tend mm-hmm. to be in the south of England. Right. I think this is going to give them a much broader geographical spread for that Virgin Money brand, um, so a greater presence on the high street. How important that is yeah. at the moment, I don't know, but that's an interesting thing as well, well kind of yeah. making it a national brand as opposed to a northern versus a southern mm. brand. Mm. The B brand, I've got to say, is quite possibly the worst brand in, in all of digital banking because if you go into Google and put the letter B in, oh. You don't find anything. And, and similar, <laughs> if you put it into the app store, you that's don't that, find anything. That's not true. There is an awesome movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because obviously, the I mean, I was at Merrill Lynch when Bank of America acquired us and we all had to kind of re-interview for our jobs. And I think these guys are going through a very similar thing where you have, you know, double roles, double everything mm. and then you're going to see the be- maybe the best person win mm. kind of situation so it almost doesn't matter who acquires whom mm. in this kind of reality they're all probably just you know trying to figure out who's going to stay the head of something yeah. mm. go well, capitalism it- <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to the points around culture that that is the worst possible thing mm. trying to create a new culture by setting 
a huge amount of layoffs to kind of, you know, mm. figure out in this weird sort of uh, musical chairs who ends up keeping their jobs is like a, it's not a great place to start, is it? It's but, not, uh, but that's just how it's done, right? That's the, the reality as well. It's true. Very true. I mean, when I was at Aviva, I think every three years, basically the entirety of the company reset and had to reply for their jobs, which was, <laughs> it was an interesting merry-go-round, I have to say. But uh, A lot of contractors have had to do that recently. It's just oh, how it is. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps everybody on their toes, doesn't it? So, all right. And everything is not awesome, unfortunately. So this is a story over on Finextra, which is Denizen Shuts Up Shop. So Denizen, a global borderless account or previously global borderless account for expat banking incubated out of BBVA's new digital business unit in San Francisco is shutting down, unfortunately. It was initially available in the US and Spain. The borderless account was intended to eliminate the cost and uncertainty and also the hassle of international banking for world travelers, expats, immigrants, and refugees. Broad kind of aim, I guess, there. Uh, the service allowed customers to receive money in one country and pay out in another immediately but turns out it's not going so well. So in doing so, they were attacking a market identified by non-bank money transfer firms such as Transferwise and Revolut. The statement that came out of this, while we're proud of what we've created together, Denison was not able to achieve the scale needed to sustain operations in the current market. It's been three years of tremendous learnings and collaborative working, and we thank you for your contribution to our grace. The end. Sad. Yeah, it's interesting that they say they weren't able to achieve the scale they needed to sustain operations in the current market, whereas we know that TransferWise um, and Revolut to, to a certain extent, although we know they've diversified, but TransferWise certainly has very successfully achieved mm-hmm. scale. So um, I wonder, you know, I wonder what the main problem was there, you know, to continue the theme of today's podcast. I wonder if it was the brand that didn't appeal enough. I don't know if it was the price. I don't know if it was the suite of services offered though the suite of services looks very similar to what I can see mm-hmm. from uh, TransferWise's borderless account. it's uh, hmm. This happens, you know, things, good ideas don't necessarily always take off. But From what I know, it's it's actually come down to the culture. So obviously the Denison team ah, was very San Francisco. Exactly, <laughs> right? The, but they were very, you know, San Francisco type, you know, Silicon Valley culture. And when they were trying to bring that back to headquarters, Spain, it was just not the same the same approach. They were hugely influential, I think, in changing BBVA's culture internally, and I think they managed to do that to a certain extent. But from what I've heard from people who actually were running the Nissan and how it, it ended up happening, quite a few of them, I think, in the past maybe two years, like even like one year in the 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 conversation, they had actually reshuffled within mm. BBVA because they saw that it was not going to go anywhere. It's interesting. I mean, BBVA have had a couple of cracks at that, haven't they? With obviously Simple, first in the US, yeah, uh, Holvi. Yeah. seems to be the only one who seems to really have sort of weathered that storm to a certain degree. You know, mm. they. I know they're not exactly lighting the, the sort of European market on fire mm. in terms of the business space, but I mean, they are still going after, what, four or five years? More, I, think. I think it goes back to that point of do you try and bring people in? Do you let them run on their own? So as far as I understand it, Holvi is very much allowed to run as its own sort of business unit over there, do its own thing. This to me speaks a lot to the idea of can you incubate innovation somewhere else that's really cool and trendy and then bring it back in-house? We haven't seen – we've seen very few successful examples of that. Where we've seen success, where big banks incubate um, out of you know the, the main office or the main location or whatever it is, they've been allowed to continue separately. And I would really love to see a success story. I'd really mm. love to see a 
you know, successful business, it's incubated, um, allowed to grow on its own, maybe in a separate workspace, separate location, whatever, and then brought back in and continuing to grow and continuing to be successful. Mm. But I think to Diana's points about cults today, I think that's been the biggest problem. And maybe it would work for BBVA now. Maybe because BBVA have, you know, overhauled their culture so significantly in the last yeah. few years. Maybe if Denison went out today, this wouldn't happen. That's right. But, you know, you'd be surprised in terms of success stories around that. RBS has overall been relatively successful at some mm-hmm. of that with Bo and, and different entities. And, I mean, I know from some people that part of it was that they could continue operating separately. Not perfect, but at mm. least they're not going bust, mm. right? And I think that that's the, the you know... At the end of the day, you have to kind of try to get the the successes out of those situations. Yeah, I mean, we built Metal, which is a SME yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, challenge bank within within RBS, and actually the sort of proviso. In fact, our Eleven FS going into big consultancy engagements like that. One of the things that we refer to as the ransom note is uh, very lovingly is that actually we bring our culture to the startups that we start. Meaning that actually it is a unleashing talent focused organisation. It's not about you know I don't like that bum on that seat, swap that bum mm-hmm. mentality. It's very yeah. much about actually how do you create that culture. I think it's really really hard for. It's almost like organ rejection within big organizations because mm-hmm. they're just fundamentally oscillating at different speeds. So there are very, very, very few organizations that actually, when they have created something, cannot risk kind of breaking the culture or breaking the the capability or just encasing it in cement, which I think I often sort of say it's the thing that's most impressive to me in the Revolutes and the Starlings and the Monzos is not their app because I think it's interesting but not amazing. But it's fundamentally the fact that they can continue to the speed in which they can innovate in like a real sense and not that sort of bullshitty way that people kind of mean it in big banks. Release a press release and do nothing for the next eight months. That thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, But be in a situation where they can continually evolve and continually move these forwards, more like a tech company. Yeah. yeah. Um, So it is interesting. But it's, I mean, it's amazing how many of these stories are coming back to culture today, which is Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. And probably... It's a good segue, I think, to our oh, and no. finally oh, uh, story of the week. <laughs> the uh, so balls. this is women at EY are being instructed on how to dress and act nicely around men. Uh, this is over on the Huffington Post. Where, uh, when women speak, they shouldn't be shrill. Clothings must flatter. But short skirts are a no-no. <laughs> Who knew? Just outrageous. I'm <laughs> laughing because otherwise I'd be crying. So. After all, sexuality scrambles the mind. Women should look healthy, okay, and fit with a good haircut and manicured nails. These are just a few pieces of advice that around 30 female executives at Ernest & Young received at a training session. So the 55-page presentation was given to HuffPost by an attendee who was appalled by its contents. So full of out-of-touch advice, the presentation focused on how women need to fix themselves uh, to fit into a male-dominated workplace. Shit. (laughs) I mean... Who wants in? uh, Right. Well, I'm kind of aware that Michael is filming me, so I'll try and keep this reasonably composed. <laughs> um, it it reads like 
uh, a few pages out of, I don't know, a debutante's guidebook, perhaps from the 1920s, if we're being kind. It's like a finishing school. It's amazing. And some of the stuff, I mean, some of the stuff is, is very outdated and backwards. Some of the stuff is just nonsensical. I'm going to read the pancake bit out because we still can't quite get our heads around this. Maybe the men can. I don't know. Maybe I, think it's, I think it's because your brain's like a pancake. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently women's brains absorb information like pancakes. They soak up syrup so it's hard for them to focus. Oh, my God. Men's brains are much more like waffles. They're better able to focus because the information collects in each little waffle square. Now, my immediate thought was... Surely absorbing all the information at once would be a benefit or a pro rather than collecting it in little pools and having to join it up later. But also, why would you compare your brain to a breakfast food? And thank you to Matt, our content editor, who made that. His first comment earlier was like, the minute you start comparing your brain to a breakfast food, you're done. Like, you know, it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, we can also go on to talk about the masculine feminine score sheet. The feminine uh, and masculine traits, which um, candidates or the the employees were assessed against. So there is um, feminine and then score at work and then score not at work and then masculine score at work and then score not at work. I don't actually know how this worked. I haven't read it properly. It's to do with a psychometric test. But feminine traits are affectionate, cheerful, childlike. Um, Surely that's ungentered. Gullible. Surely. Gullible. Loves children. Shy, soft-spoken, understanding, yielding. Ooh. I mean, whoa, given this came out, this <laughs> upsetting. <aren't> yeah, <laughs> given this was um, this happened in June 2018, so in the middle of the whole Me Too movement. Men, on the other hand, or masculine traits rather, are aggressive, ambitious, analytical, athletic, defends one's beliefs, forceful, uh, self-reliant, willing to take a stand and willing to take risks. I, I mean, there's like score at work and score not at yeah. work. What so how are, you do, how are you scoring me when I'm not at work? Like, uh, how, um, how are you doing that? Are they scoring that? themselves, I think. But, uh, maybe they, uh, oh, I see. Possibly. So there was, there was a particular... Even worse. A particular great piece of advice um, <laughs> for all you ladies out there. So this is, if you're having a conversation with a man, cross your legs and sit in an angle to him. Don't talk to a man face to face. Men see that as threatening. Yeah. It's like we're being treated like bears. <laughs> <laughs> if you see a man in a workplace, make yourself as large as possible. Make a loud noise yeah. and, uh, you know, move slowly. Yeah. If they're over the age of 50, pretend to be dead. <laughs> they no, don't like that. I think I think it's important to get some perspective on that, right? So, like, you know, maybe 13 years ago when I started my career in banking, there were some courses out there that were, you know, specifically to have, you know, more women enter banking and, and that kind of stuff. And this is, I mean, this is pretty outrageous, but this is not super far off from some of the advice that we were getting, right, as like young women entering the, the industry. And I think that in some ways it's really sad. But like for me, it gives me a lot of like hope to think that, you know, even like the five people around the table were like outraged by the fact that this is even happening nowadays. So it gives you a sense of... This is really the kind of advice that you would get 10 years ago, even to enter in the mm. industry in London, right? And so the fact that we're, you know, finding this so appalling yeah. is a sign that, you know, the movement of things like hashtag me too and all of that is actually going to places. It's actually really triggering emotionally for a lot of people how crazy this kind of for stuff sure. is. And, and to build on that, um, when I was at school, I went to a school that was an all-girls school and it was designed to, to, you know, educate young women so they could be successful. It wasn't a, it wasn't a finishing school. Yeah. But we were also told that if we wanted to succeed in a business or finance workplace, there were certain attributes we needed to adopt 
stopped. And again, it was, you know, particularly there shouldn't be shrill. Uh, yeah. You know, we had we had classes that taught us how to speak in a certain depth and a certain tone, because if we wanted to succeed, these were the traits we should adopt. And that was supposed to be encouraging. It was supposed to be helping us to get jobs in these workplaces that were male dominated. It, it wasn't done with a kind of patronizing or get back in your box. It was actually the opposite. It, it was trying to help young women succeed. So I, I do completely agree with you, Diana, that the fact that this is now ridiculous and it is completely ridiculous to everybody around this table is it, a good start and it's, it's a movement in the right direction. Yeah. What upsets me is how many people I think there are out there who would still agree with all of these points. Mm. It strikes home actually what I heard somebody say about um, this is quite British, but Joe Swinson, who's the leader of one of our political parties over here, she has only been the leader for a short amount of time and she's been told off time and time again in the press of being too shrill. Yeah. She just happens to have a higher pitched voice than the other two party leaders who are men. There's not a lot she can do about that, but it, it is still out there and there still are a lot of people who, who believe in this. Yeah. And that does make me sad. But talking about it is the only way to, to change this stuff. And I, I do think that if we don't talk about it, it's almost like denying that this is even mm. still happening because it is, right? I think you find it in all sorts of places in society. I mean, even like, you know, the criticism for women politicians or Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and all of this kind of things. It goes always to this kind of, you know, shrillness, hysteria, you know, bitchiness and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which men don't really have mm-hmm. to to deal with. And I guess that, you know, having a voice around that and actually getting men on our side to understand that this is what's going on is actually really, really important because sometimes those things don't come from men, right? Mm-hmm. This is also the part that you, you would find really shocking. So some of the, the things that are happening nowadays in terms of like sessions for, you know, leadership women to kind of discuss how we get, you know, more women in power and all of this kind of stuff, like the women themselves will actually be going with this kind of approach, how like, you know, a man's brain is different from a woman's brain. And you're like, this is not the right conversation to be having. No. And you do find it in the older generation rather than the younger one, to be fair, but it's still what's happening. Mm-hmm. The classic example that sort of touches on that is Cheryl Sandsberg's Lean In. Like a lot of women read that and went, right, this is how we succeed. But actually, if you look at it now, X number of years on, a lot of women are going, no, we should lean out. Like the men, <laughs> the men should be pulling backwards. We should mm. be trying to force ourselves into it. And, and, you know, she was one of the most successful executives within a technology firm in recent years. Mm. That's right. I, it's not just outrageous that it's being done in a company, but EY as well. You know, they get brought into other companies to then do consulting and teach values and help them to turn stuff around. So, so what angers me even more is that they, this message is being propagated not just within a company, but potentially within other companies as well. It's, it's scandalous, really. Mm. But it's this high, you know, the, what is the ceiling? What's the expression? Glass, glass ceiling. ceiling. The glass ceiling. That's mm. the glass ceiling. And mm. in those, I mean, really in banking and in, in consulting, those industries have a lot of that still. Mm. It is changing and there's enough people that are good that are trying to change this stuff. But I think that, you know, not being aware that this is still happening is, mm. is, is a problem, right? Because wasn't there like an article that happened last year from an, a journalist in the FT? It was like a huge scandal of like this ball that happens every year in the yeah. city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. President's I mean, club. That's right, yeah. right? So that's like a yearly parley that happens and it's just how it is. And so mm. unless you surface these things up, then nothing will change, right? But, I think the thing that I find alarming about this though is similar to what I was saying earlier on is like how many people just leave themselves at the front door when they go into work? Like most of the, the guys who have these perspectives have families and like mums and daughters and you know it just seems so strange that they would react in one way in a work environment and react so very differently in a 
private, you know, a, a public environment. Do you know what I mean? It just it just seems bizarre. Also, that this isn't from like some sort of weird fucking novel. You know what I mean? Like it's just like how have EY done this? in theoretically, what, 2018? To go to your point there, you know, the, the quality, the one that stands out for me here is Love's Children. So Love's Children score at work, score not at work. Now that's a feminine quality. So do women only love their children at home and not at work? And do men not love their children? It is kind of this very, very strange inclusion. I mean, the whole list is strange, but that is... It is very bizarre because I don't think even if you went back to sort of eighteen twenty, men would say, "Oh no, I don't love my children. I just don't show it." But I, but I do. I definitely think there are some women who wouldn't feel comfortable to talk about their children in the workplace. Who would There's not, a who, lot. Who would not want to draw oh, yeah, draw attention lot. to their. I mean, their I remember you're instantly put in oh, a certain you're, box. Oh, yeah, well, you'll be yeah, off at yeah. half term then. Like, I mean, I remember the treating for when some of my friends got pregnant. They just did not want us to talk about it on like a Bloomberg chat or on you know it was just or on BlackBerry or anything like that. Right? So it was just. I don't want anyone to know that I'm pregnant until like the last, last minute. But it's interesting because I think sometimes with all of these conversations for women and equality, the, the real solution is to make this for both men and women, right? Because to your point, you know, men also want to hang out with their kids and the paternity leave. Yeah. All that. Mm. I think they do. <laughs> I've had a week of it, what honestly. What do you mean? Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty mixed bag. No, but it has to be something that you share. I'm sure, sure. if your wife is listening, she'll love that. <laughs> she, she's going to shout at me for sure. <laughs> but I think that it's it's changing that conversation. Yeah. There, there's a session we did recently in Berlin that was actually sponsored finally by EY and SAP and the World Economic Forum. <laughs> uh, maybe they knew this was coming. Penance. So, yeah. <laughs> But effectively, it was very much around the conversation that if we continue making the whole like women equality and hashtag me to a thing for women, then you're not really talking about creating a society that's good for men and women, right? And mm. I, I find that, you know, I have so many colleagues that are fathers and that are really, that also feel, you know, worried for their own daughters, what's going to happen in the future. That's really the best way to change societies, to make a society that's good for everyone yeah. to thrive however they want to be, gender aside and, you know. Everything aside. I honestly think, I mean, we're going to go down at a real rabbit hole here, but I, I honestly <laughs> think that is the point. You know, actually, no anything is anything is kind of how I think about stuff. Uh, like, no man is, like, masculine and no woman is, like, feminine. feminine. That's right. It's like, actually, we don't live in this world of, like, black and white and you are one thing because you're a woman and I'm another thing because I'm a man. Like, actually, this uh, world is, like, shades of grey and not That's the right. terrible movie. Like, just the, you know, <laughs> fact that anybody can be anything in that spectrum. And anything that I think tries to push people into you're this because you're that – just takes away individuality of anything because you can have twins who will be completely different people based on just physiology in terms of how they are. So personally, I just don't understand people's preoccupation with trying to put people in boxes. It just doesn't make any sense to me at all. But I, I do think there is a big point, as you were saying, which is actually the narrative is so anti-equality. It's actually pro um, pro-human. Pro-human, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which um, is is an I interesting sort of balancing act because I think people, different people run with those messages in different ways and sort of use them to whatever narrative it is that they're sort of trying to skew. I mean, obviously, I don't think anybody's going to stand up and de defend EY here as like, a, well, I, I mean, I'd be interested what my school would be in this. <laughs> I think it's probably the only thing that I'd come out of it because the fact that I do love my children and I does not use harsh language. No, I'm definitely not going to do on that one, am I? I am quite compassionate. I'm definitely childlike. 
<laughs> I mean, I think I'm coming out pretty feminine in this scoring. So, um, but I think that that's the point, right? Is that we're failing as a society if we're not designing a world where everyone can be the best they can be, right? Whether they're male, female, depend independent of their sexuality or anything like that. Mm. And so, it's uh, I think it's a much broader conversation as to how we, you know, how we live as yeah. people. Like, what are we aspiring to? I think I'm less offended by the table albeit hilarious. I think I'm more offended by the advice, aren't you? Because I think the traits being <clears throat> naturally biased to a, you know, a, a masculine or a feminine trait, I can kind of understand that because that, I, I don't think they're necessarily saying females are childlike and females are love their children. And by net proxy of that, men don't love their children and men are not childlike or whatever. It's the points around, you know, making sure you cross your legs and making sure you sort of curtsy and whatnot that I find much more offensive, you know. I don't know. I'm equally outraged by both, to be honest with you. Like the the advice is is very, very old fashioned and also completely flawed and actually makes no sense when you listen to it. It's not even advice in some cases. It's just kind of like, it sort of feels like some ramblings that somebody wrote down once after they've had <laughs> seven too many glasses of wine. Um, Which but, is how I find best values be written. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. The score sheet is very telling if you are somebody who studies language and knows a lot about language. So, you know, the word aggressive comes across as a masculine trait. The minute a woman expresses the same trait, they become bossy. And there are, you know, different connotations to both of those. Ambitious is viewed as masculine, but, you know, cheerful is feminine, childlike. It, it, I don't know. I, I'm equally offended by both, to be honest with you. Mm. I couldn't say that I'm offended by more. There was a definite lack of creativity in some of them where femininity is feminine. And masculinity is masculine. masculine yeah. <laughs> well, I believe whatever consultancy consulted for this consultancy, yeah. it feels did well. like a philosopher was involved in that. Yeah. But, but it's also as in like, how honest can someone be on this score sheet, right? So, well, that's the thing. people are clearly going to game it. Of course, it's like, <laughs> like, do you do you really want to look like you're masculine if you're a woman or well, course, vice versa? Yeah, I, yeah. As in, what is this? Who did they even give this? I, to? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> it's a it's a greatest hits of bigotry and we should probably leave it <laughs> Let's just move on. well I'm filling it in alright I'm filling it in I'll, I'll put it on social tomorrow and we'll alright that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to our guests for joining us where can people find out more about you Dinah for myself suede.org or dianaratomis3 on twitter or at suede labs very good Dan on Twitter, you can find me at dh underscore Habito. Um, if you would like a glorious mortgage, head over to Habito.com for that. Very good. Oliver? Uh, you can read my stories on altfi.com and you can find me on Twitter at OliverSmithEU. Very good. Sarah? You can find me writing on Forbes. If you're interested in my blog posts, you can find me hosting our sister podcast at Instec Insiders. If you haven't signed up to that yet, I'm clearly not doing enough plugs on this <laughs> podcast. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. As for me, you can find me on at David Breer over on Twitter. Uh, what do you think of today's short stories? Let us know over on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Don't forget to watch the documentary that we put out, 11 Years. Find it over on 11years.film and share it using hashtag 11years. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>